Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Doing well? Did you have plenty to eat for Thanksgiving? You know, it's been hard for me to maintain my diet since I've been traveling a lot. You know, everybody wants to feed you, you know, the best that they have. And, you know, I've been suffering for Jesus a lot and, and uh, ended up having to go to, to the doctor. And I, I can't remember if he said that I was obese or a beast. Um, <laughs> But I do know, I do know that uh, the fat belongs to the Lord, and uh, I love God. <laughs> but it is uh, it's such an honor to be back and to be able to share with you. I appreciate Pastor Clay and Andrea for the opportunity to come and to, to share with you. This is my home church, whether I'm actually here physically or, or, or not. Uh, I've actually been a part of this church since the conception some of you may or may not know me, but uh, that's not important. But I just want you to know that even though there's times, you know, it's probably been, I was here last week, but it was almost maybe four months since the last time I was able to be here. But I've traveled since January. I've tried to uh, add it up. Since January, I've traveled about uh, 50,000 miles. And so uh, uh, we're keeping the roads hot, but we're, we're doing the work of Jesus. And I just want to say before I get started that man, everything looks so wonderful. You know, Clay and Andrea and the, the leadership here and those of you that are involved in uh, the ministry, serving, helping in any way. Uh, the, the property's looking wonderful. The blacktop looks great. I've not got a chance to, to see the new uh, updates and upgrades over in the building. And, and uh, Clay told me that. He said, once it's finished, I'll give you the tour. But, uh, you know, I want you to know the Lord's with you. And the Lord is doing great things. I'm so excited. Every time that I come, it, it, it blesses me so much to see the growth and the progress. And sometimes when you're in the middle of everything that's going on, you, you don't necessarily see all that God is doing and accomplishing. And I want you to know what God's doing here is very special and unique and uh, it's significant. And, you know, you're just getting started. You know, the best days for this church, I'm so uh, hopeful. The best days for this church is still uh, ahead of us. Okay, and so it's just it's just wonderful to see all the great things that have been happening. Just a quick testimony. I was in Mexico uh, a, a couple of months back and I was in an area called Chamula. I'd never been in this area before. And I just assumed everybody spoke Spanish in Mexico. Right. You know, but evidently they don't. But this is a very remote area. And this particular part is in the mountains. And in, in this area, they actually speak uh a, a language called Cecile, which I probably butchered the actual pronunciation of it. But, uh, you know, in this particular area, they had suffered severe persecution from like 1970 all the way up to the year 2000. And the church that I was speaking at, I, we did a pastor's conference. There were probably about 500 pastors that were, that were there. And, uh, you know, in, in this particular conference we were speaking in, uh, I was just sharing about just the importance of, of forgiveness and, you know, dealing with unfair treatment. And, and in the middle of the message, uh, God just began to move. The Holy Spirit just began to move on people's hearts. And, and people were just uncontrollably weeping. My, my interpreter was weeping. And, you know, all of a sudden I, I started weeping myself. And I, I just cut the message short and opened up the altar and invited people to come forward for prayer. 
And, you know, I had seen people respond like this before, but uh, when people responded to the, the, to the altar call to come and pray, you know, they filled the entire front and the entire part of the front part of the altar. And whenever it, that was filled, they began to fill the different uh, uh, aisles, and they were on their hands and their knees, and, and they were weeping and crying. And like I said, I'd seen stuff like that before, but what I had not seen was after these folks got up and went back to their seats, I looked around, and the entire altar was soaked with tears. I mean, there were huge puddles of tears, and I, I cannot unsee that. I cannot. I, it ruined me. But th those folks were so hungry and passionate for God that, you know, they, they were just bearing their hearts and their souls before the Lord, and the Lord was ministering to them. And, you know, I had no idea at that particular time what all that they'd been through. Uh, this particular church that we were at, the way it got started, the, the pastor is the grandson of, uh, of the gentleman who started the church. And uh, at this particular time in the early 1970s, no, no Christians in this particular area. And uh, the government would actually pay people to go and murder other Christians because people were being converted, radically transformed, and uh, they, were, they were giving up alcohol and giving up, you know, these, these, these things that were uh, uh, causing, you know, an effect on the, on the economy in this particular area. And the way this church got started, the, the grandfather of the pastor was going around in the different villages and was sharing the gospel. And one particular uh, time as he was sharing the gospel, a gentleman took a, a, a gun. He was shot three times in the stomach. And, uh, you know, miraculously, he, he survived. And, and once these people realized that they couldn't kill all the Christians, they began to send them out in exile. They began to throw them out of their communities and... Uh, so they were driven away from their homes. The, the only church that was there was, was destroyed by the, the local government. And while they were away, it was kind of like the children of Israel. They were, uh, you know, the more that they were afflicted, the more that they multiplied. And so uh, a few years passed, and then they had grown, and, and they decided to go back to this particular area and confront the government officials that had tried to exile them from their homes and, and had destroyed their church. And long story short, when they come back and, and confronted the government officials, the Mexican government, the federal government, got involved in the situation and, and forced the local government in this particular area of Mexico to not only rebuild their church back, but they rebuilt their church back twice as good. And it is one of the most beautiful sanctuaries I've ever seen in my entire life. And so, you know, to see what those folks had to go through to get to where they were at. And that particular Sunday morning that I preached in this church, the folks that attended that church had to walk four hours to get there. I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I couldn't even attend this church. I'm not even physical enough shape to be able to walk and come to church on Sunday morning. But those folks come and they walk four. I'm talking about in the mountains, mountains like we've got in you know, extreme eastern Kentucky. And, you know, the passion and the love for God that they had, I had, had not experienced probably ever before in any place that I'd ever been. And so God is, you know, he was moving and is moving in those areas in, in an incredible way. Um, we are uh, currently planting churches, which we've talked about this before, but we, we're planting churches in Uganda, South Sudan, and Rwanda. We've uh, been able to plant over 17 churches in the last nine months. 
and we have actually nine new church plants going on in unreached people group areas. And I always stress this because I want you to know that this church is a supporter of, of, of what we do, and we're so appreciative for the, the, the generosity that you guys have shown since uh, we've had this transition. But um, in one particular area, I can't remember if I shared this story or not, but uh, we had some church planters go to probably the most remote area in Sudan that uh, they'd ever been. Uh, there's no roads here, there's no running water, there's no houses, there's no hospitals, there's no convenience stores, there's no electricity, there's no homes. They're very nomadic people. They, you know, they, they, they don't even wear clothes. They're, 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 they, they go from place to place, and they're hunter-gatherers, and that's how they live. And so our church planters reached in this particular area, and uh, the last report I got, they were there 28 days and they had won 627 people to Jesus in less than a month. Now, when I say uh, unreached people group areas, I'm, I'm talking about areas that have never heard the gospel, never heard the name of Jesus before. There's no church, no mosque, no temple, nothing there. So these are first-generation Christians that are being reached, and, and you guys are a big part of making that happen. So let's, let's give the Lord a big hand clap for that. But I appreciate, Clay, the opportunity to come and share, man. I love you. Love you like a third cousin. <laughs> but in all honesty, I'm, I'm, I'm so proud. I mean, it just thrills me to see what's happening here. If you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter number 1. And I know that uh, we're getting ready to go into this uh, Awaken Hope campaign, and uh, I asked Clay if there's anything specific that maybe you would like for me to share or, or, or talk about. And, you know, uh, considering the fact that you know, we're, we're receiving the offering on December the 11th, and uh, this is phase two, and there's been much been accomplished since going into this campaign, uh, I'm just praying, and I believe God's really given me something to, to share with you. And uh, I want to talk about this morning, I want to talk about the burden of vision. And what I mean by burden of vision, I don't mean that the vision of God is a burden. I'm talking about, when I'm talking about burden, I'm talking about feeling the heart of God, receiving the heart of God for a, a particular thing, a particular group of people, a particular community. God puts a burden, his burden in our hearts so that we can personally identify with the needs of the people that are around us. And I don't know if you've noticed this or know this yet, but church has a way of having, creating its own culture that it's very easy for us to become inwardly focused and forget that within driving distance of our church this morning are tens of thousands of people that are on their way to hell. They don't know Jesus, and they're not being reached. And you know, one of the worst things that can happen to a Christian or a church is for them to forget that there's a lost and dying world just outside these doors. I'm not saying that's what's happening here. I'm just saying it's very easy to kind of fall into that type of complacency that we forget that, you know what, we're here for a mission. You know, Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. And so we have the responsibility of going and telling. So I want to talk to you this morning about the burden of vision, and I'm going to read a couple of verses in Nehemiah chapter 1. If you're there, say amen. Verse 1, it says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Shezlev, in the 20th year, I also was in Shushan, the citadel, which is modern-day Tehran, Iran. 
And he said, and that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came to me from Judah, and I asked him concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem, and he said to me, what, what, he, what this is saying is, he was wondering how his people were doing in Jerusalem. He wanted to get an update of the condition of the lives of the people in his homeland. And he said, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Once he hears this, I want you to notice the response that, that, that he gives to what he hears concerning his people. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would just help me to communicate your heart uh, to your people. I thank you for the word of God. I thank you for the spirit of God, the people of God. I pray that you would give revelation knowledge in our heart concerning what you're saying. Somewhere in this message, help us to see ourselves. And Lord, you were speaking to Nehemiah about his city and his community and his people. I believe that, God, you're doing the same thing to us today, that you're speaking to us about our people and our community and our city and the condition that their lives are in. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that understand and wills that are willing to obey and place your burden for your work, for your people in our hearts. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Now, I believe that the book of Nehemiah carries prophetic significance to all of us in, in our day. Not, not only do I believe that it carries uh, prophetic significance, I believe that it is extremely relevant for the different challenges that we're facing in our world. You know, Nehemiah's situation is not really much different than the situation that we find ourselves in in, in, in southeastern Kentucky. And so what's happening in the book of Nehemiah, we're, the book of Nehemiah is about a community, it's about a city, it is about a, a people that have been struggling through generational difficulties. And for three generations at this particular time, nothing has changed, nothing has improved, no progress has been made. And they've come to a place where uh, they've given up, almost given up all hope that change for the better is actually possible. You know, Nehemiah is about a, a community that is laying in ruin. It's about a group of people that are, are struggling with generational problems and curses and, and issues. And, and, and so they've given in to hopelessness. And, and hopelessness is, is a very dangerous and deadly thing. And, and so it's important for us to take what we read in the book of Nehemiah and, and evaluate where our community is, where our families are are where our people are and 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 ask God God is there something that you want to show me something that you want me to do something that you would like for me to uh, get involved with and, and this is what we see happening in, in the book of Nehemiah now God was about to raise up a man with a vision we're, we're talking about uh, awaken hope and and I believe God is giving our pastor vision for the future of this church and so the vision that God was about to give Nehemiah would ultimately in 
inspire his people, inspire an entire nation to see something accomplished that the majority of the people living in that community never thought would be possible because for over 140 years, the wall of the city of Jerusalem, the city, the society, the, the community itself, their lives, the Bible says that the condition was they were in deep distress and reproach. In other words, things were bad and they were only getting worse. But God was going to raise up a man that had a vision. And this vision would inspire not only his people, it would inspire the entire nation. And Nehemiah would ultimately accomplish in 52 days what had not been accomplished in 141 years. I believe God wants to use you. I believe God wants to use this church. I don't believe that City of Hope Church is just a name that we've placed over the door. I believe that it is a prophetic decree. I believe that Manchester is the City of Hope. Where else in the world would God would want like to raise up a people who are, are known for generational difficulty, generational curses? You know what the world thinks about southeastern Kentucky. You know what people think about the, the, the kind of life that we, that we have here. You know, we're, we're always stereotyped. We're, we're always looked at as less than. Where else would be a greater place for God to do something on an incredible level to inspire the nation than right here where we sit this morning? I believe that's what God really wants to do. When we changed the name of our church to City of Hope, we weren't changing it because we thought that that was just a cool name. We wanted to change it because we believe God was prophetically declaring that this city is truly the City of Hope. And we wanted our church to be a sign, a literal sign and wonder that even, th even though things may not change as rapidly as we'd hoped, even though things have not changed maybe generations after generation after generation, wanted our church to be a constant reminder that you know what hope lives in our community hope lives in our heart hope lives in our church now why is this important because hope is important listen hope is a powerful force for good you know it's been said that he who has hope has power and when there is no hope for the future there's no power for the present and the word hope actually means the expectation of a favorable future. And that's what we see here. But it was very difficult for people that are dealing with generational problems to actually find it within themselves to have hope that God really could do something incredible and change the situation. It's very easy for us to live in an area like this and become cynical and hard-hearted and just blow things off as if, you know what, this is the way that it's been. This is the way that it's always going to be. But I want you to know, I believe God sent me here this morning to let you know that that's a lie from the devil. That the devil is a liar. So if you've aligned yourself with the lies of the devil, we need to repent for believing the devil because there's a lot of folks that have more faith in the devil to destroy them than they do in God to save them. And so Nehemiah is, is faced with some, some serious things. Now, there's three things I want to show you this morning that I, I see in this story that I believe is relevant for all of us. Somewhere in this message, I pray and I trust that we will find ourselves in the midst of this story. Now, the first thing that I want to point out is, is Nehemiah is having to deal with a difficult problem. Now, there's a term that's called home blindness. Have any of you ever heard of home blindness? 
It's a literal thing. And what home blindness is, it's like walking into a house and looking at a picture on the wall that's actually crooked. And home blindness says that if you walk into this home 14 days in a row and you look at that crooked picture without straightening it up, after 14 days, that crooked picture will actually begin to look straight. You know, in other words, it's, it's, it's very possible for us to become comfortable with being weird. So we look at the dysfunction in our community. We look at broken homes. We look at drug addiction. We look at poverty. We look at all these things. And some of you have been struck and you are stuck with home blindness. You've looked at this for so long that you've become cynical and hard-hearted. And you said, you know what, this is just what the norm is. And I'm here to tell you that's not normal. Listen, we need to look at this situation and say, you know what? God wants to raise me up. God wants to use me. God wants to use our church to help challenge the dysfunction in our region and to set wrong things right. But if you settle in your heart that, you know what? This is the way it's always been. This is the way it's always going to be. You're no good for God or the devil. Now, I promise you, it's very easy to become cynical. And if you don't think that's true, we'll dig a little bit deeper here and we'll be able to see our true hearts, I believe. Now, this is what's happening in Jerusalem. They are in generational poverty. They're in over a century where there's been no change. Nothing has happened. It's not a very good time to be a Jew. It's not a very good time to live in Jerusalem. So what specifically is Nehemiah up against? How bad is the situation? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Let me explain it to you. Here's how bad things are in Jerusalem. What's going on in Jerusalem is nothing less than total and complete spiritual, social, economic, and governmental collapse. It is a community in ruin. Crime is running rapid. There is no internal superstructure to hold anything together. Things are as bad as they can get at this particular time. As a matter of fact, it's really an impossible situation aside from God's involvement. So Nehemiah's looking at an impossible situation. Now, how would you like to be faced with the task of having to deal with an impossible situation? Well, that's exactly what Nehemiah has, has dealt with. Listen, Nehemiah is dealing with problems that Republicans can't fix. He, he's dealing with problems that the Democrats can't fix. He's dealing with, with problems that the federal government can't fix. He's dealing with problems that a stimulus check can't fix. He's dealing with problems that even Donald J. Trump cannot fix. Things are bad. And listen, in our nation, we have more hope in Donald Trump than we do the God of heaven. God help us. And we allow ourselves to get wrapped up in the political toxicity of our society. And listen, nothing is more divisive in the church than politics. But here's what we've got in common. The problems we're dealing with in our community are greater than Republican and Democrat. They're far greater. At the root, they're not, they're not political. 
They're not economic. They're not social. They're not governmental. The root issue is that we have spiritual depravity, and the reality is that the church has become part of the problem. It's never a society's fault that things are as bad as they are. It's always the church's fault. Why? Because the church is supposed to be salt and light. Salt is a preservative. Jesus said when salt loses its preservative ingredients, it's no good for nothing. And that's why people come in our church. Nothing happens. They walk back out the door. Nothing happens because there's not enough God in our churches to really bring transformation in their lives. We have lost our preservative qualities. And whether it's our fault or somebody else's fault, when it comes to dealing with sin, the Bible says sin is a reproach to any nation. It's almost like a football team. You know, when the offensive uh, team gets out on the field and you've got the lineman up front and you've got the quarterback and you've got the running back and the receivers, if one lineman moves before the rest of the linemen move, there is a penalty. Everybody in the team experiences the consequences of one person's mistake. And the truth is, maybe the problems in our community didn't start with us, but the truth is we're being and experiencing the consequences of those that have made those mistakes in previous generations because we didn't get to where we're at right now overnight. Now, we can't change what has happened, but we can change what will happen if we're willing to identify what the problem is and then become part of the solution. Now, I'm preaching better than you're amening right now, but... But I'm going somewhere. This is the kind of problem that, that Nehemiah is dealing with. Here's the second thing that I see in this story. The second thing is I see a, a dedicated person. I see a difficult problem. Then I see a dedicated person. Now, if God's going to rebuild the wall and restore the city, he's going to have to find somebody that is willing to commit themselves to the work. Now, listen. Nobody will commit themselves to the vision of God until they have first been broken by the burden of God. Let me say that again. Nobody will commit themselves to the vision of God. Listen, Clay could get up here and give the most beautiful, eloquent, inspiring vision that you've ever heard in your life. But nobody's going to do anything until they've first been broken and convicted in their heart that this is God, and I have a part to play in it. Amen. Nehemiah did not rebuild the wall immediately. He heard the report of the condition of the people, and what he heard broke him. He was troubled. He was convicted in his heart. He said, I can't just sit where I'm at right now, you know, in, in my nice house, and, you know, me being a part of the, the government of the time, and, you know, living in my air-conditioned home, and sleeping in my plush bed, and having all these nice things that all of us have, while those that are our people are still stuck in generational depravity and dysfunction, I've got to do something about it but that don't happen just because you have a simple concern oh that's that's bad that's that's that oh oh of course nobody in this church is like that right but in nehemiah chapter one nehemiah receives the burden from god for his people now listen 
He did not do anything until he was personally confronted with the pain and suffering of his people. Because it's easy for us to stand on the outside and look in and, and, and judge people and criticize people and accuse people and, and, and all the things that, you know, that, that everybody else does. But when Nehemiah was confronted with the pain and suffering of his people, he said, I've got to do something about it. Now, let's kind of ask ourselves that question. You know, have you ever watched television and while you're watching television, you see this commercial of these poor orphan children in Africa you know, and you know that commercial. What they're doing is they're they're, they're trying to uh, plead with you to to help the orphans in Africa. Have you seen that? Now, one thing is this: now we we watch that commercial, but we won't watch it till the end. We'll watch it, and we'll say, "Man, that's so sad." But the longer we watch it, you know, the more we start thinking about how bad things are for them, how good things are for us. And so what we do is we change the channel. Now, why do we change the channel? We change the channel because we don't want to be inconvenienced by the pain and suffering of other people. Right? Because you know if you watch that commercial long enough, you're going to be sponsoring one of them babies, right? And you don't want their pain and suffering to, you know, Maybe I'm the only one that has a terrible heart. <laughs> but Nehemiah hears about what's going on. He's burdened. He's troubled. He's convicted by it. And all of a sudden, he comes face to face. He's confronted with the inconvenience of the condition of the pain and suffering of other people. That's where vision is birthed. Vision is birthed because God wants to meet a need in another person's life and he wants to use you and I in order to do that. All vision at the root is really about people. And so this is what's happening. Now, what happens to Nehemiah? He discovers purpose out of the pain and suffering of other people. And so what happens is the burden of God comes upon him. He becomes burdened in his heart. And then God begins to take him through a personal transition. Now, here's what I feel like is prophetic for you and I. Nehemiah had to go through a personal transition before God released the vision to him in order to go back and rebuild the wall and restore the community. Now, he didn't do anything until he received the burden from God. Okay? Are you with me on that? So he heard about this condition, and he was burdened by it. He was troubled by it, and he said, you know what? I just can't sit back and not do anything about it. And so God takes him through this transition. He goes from being comfortable to concerned to consecrated. That's the process. He's comfortable. Are you comfortable this morning? It's okay if you are. You just can't stay that way when you leave. It's all right to be in a nice church, to have air conditioning and heat, to have a, a, a padded pew. You don't, have to ha you don't have to apologize for any of those things as long as you don't become addicted to it. Amen? And so God's taking Nehemiah through this transition, being comfortable, to concern, to consecrate. Now let me give you three 
characteristics of a dedicated person. God is looking for somebody that will fully dedicate himself to the vision. But none of us will fully dedicate ourselves to the vision until we receive the burden. And so that's what I feel like God's wanting me to communicate is that there's a burden that God wants to place on you, not something that's going to overwhelm you and torment you and, and, and cause you distress, but to alert you and to give you some type of concern and move you from being comfortable to concern to consecrated because it's not until we're consecrated that we're going to get involved and do something about the problems that we know are in our community. Amen? Now, here's the first characteristic. The first characteristic of a de dedicated person is a dedicated person is a concerned person. Now, a concerned person is simply somebody that cares about the condition of other people. Now, it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to possess that quality. It's one thing to, to say that you're concerned, but saying you're concerned doesn't prove that you have really genuine concern in your heart. You know, true concern means that you're at the point to where you are alert that, hey, things are not right and something has to be done. You may not know what needs to be done up to this point, but you know something's got to be done. And you may not know that God wants to use you to do that something that, that you're concerned about unless you grow in that transition from being comfortable to concerned to, to consecrated. So the worst thing that can happen to you as a Christian, to us as a church, is for us to forget the condition that our lives were in before we met Jesus. I mean, listen, it's a tragedy. It's a huge tragedy for us to forget where we were when the Lord came and rescued us from ourselves, from sin, and from Satan. And true repentance is turning from something to someone. Repentance is not just saying, hey, I'm sorry for what I did. The Bible says there's, there's a generation that, that honor God with their lips, draw near to him with their mouth, but their hearts far from him. You can say as beautiful and eloquent prayers and repeat after the preacher all you want. But if you're not turning from and turning to, you've not genuinely repented. Because true repentance has fruit. True repentance has evidence. And the Bible says there's worldly sorrow which works death. In other words, people that repent because they got caught in the, in the sin that they were in. Like, Lord, if you'll get me out of this, I promise I'll serve you. Right? God, if you get me out of this, I'll never do this again. That's not true. That's worldly sorrow. But the Bible says that godly sorrow works repentance leading unto salvation. So there's two types of repentance. And so concerned people are those that are dedicated. Now, here's the second characteristic, and that is a dedicated person is a compassionate person. Now, listen, compassion is so much more than just feelings of sympathy. It's so much more than watching a commercial and having feelings of sympathy for that child that you see. Or reading something in the newspaper or, or reading something uh, online. You know, it's, it's one thing to look at that and say, oh, that's, that's a terrible thing. But you know what? That's not true compassion. True compassion is this. It allows you to personally identify with the pain and suffering of other people. When you have compassion, you personally are moved by the condition that person's in. But it doesn't stop there. True compassion also provokes you to get involved to meet the need. Are you with me? 
So it wasn't enough just to look and, and be moved with sympathy or emotion for a person's plot in life. It says, I got to do something about it. That's what true compassion is. And a dedicated person is a compassionate person. Now, when Nehemiah heard of the condition the people were in, the Bible says he was burdened, he was troubled, he was convicted, he mourned, he wept, he fasted, he prayed. So, I mean, you know, that, that was his response to receiving a burden from God for his people and community. Now, let me ask you this. When's the last time you've cried over your community? And I'm not talking about just an emotional, moving, feeling experience. I'm talking about identifying with the pain and suffering of the people in our community that are all around us. Everybody in this church is carrying a load today that really probably nobody even knows. But when's the last time that we've actually been broken, troubled, convicted, weeping, mourning, grieving, convicted over the condition of people in our community, our state, our nation? How about this? When's the last time that we've actually felt that way over family members and friends that we know if they die today, they're going to split hell wide open? See, dry eyes often reveal hard and cynical hearts. I'm talking about something far, far deeper than just emotion. I'm talking about you're identifying with how other people feel. And only God can give you that kind of a burden. You can't work that up. You can't just look at a picture or a video and, and be moved to that level. It takes God to touch your heart in order for you to have that kind of brokenness. But it's in that brokenness that compassion is birthed in Nehemiah's heart. He heard about the distress that his people were going, were going through and, and dealing with in Jerusalem. And it provoked him and it broke him. And he began to receive from God God's heart for his people. That's where real transition and change happens. Now, here's the truth. The truth is it's easier to be consumed with complacency than it is to be confronted with the pain and suffering of other people. That convicts me. I was studying this last night. I looked at my oldest daughter, Jess. I said, man, whoo! I said, that convicts me. Because it's hard not to live in a cynical world and not become a cynical person. Here's the third thing. The third thing is a dedicated person is a consecrated person. Now, the word consecration means set apart. And we will never commit to being set apart by God for the work of the vision he wants to give us if we don't go through that process of being comfortable, concerned, and consecrated. It's a process, and only God can do that. He wants to bring brokenness in our life. Brokenness is a beautiful thing. Do you remember when you first got saved? I remember when I first got saved. It, it didn't seem like it was that long ago. 
But you know what? I, I got saved, and, and, and the sky was bluer, and the grass was greener, and everybody was beautiful, and everybody in the church was perfect, and nobody did anything bad. Nobody offended me or made me mad, or, you know, I, I wouldn't disappoint. I mean, listen, I'm waking up six feet above the ground was just a miracle for me. I loved it. I think, praise God. But then I realized that that's unrealistic. But what I was not prepared for was the reaction and the response of mature adult Christians to react and respond the way they did about things when it didn't work out the way they hoped it would. You know, it's kind of like uh, the father that heard uh, you know, his children arguing in their bedroom. And he walks into the bedroom and says, you know what? What are you guys arguing about? And the little girl says, Daddy, we're just playing church. We'll never be consecrated when we got offense in our heart toward other people. You can't be right with God and wrong with your brother and sister at the same time. I'm trying to hurry. I'm throwing some jokes in there. So when you're dealing with consecration, here's what happens. You're in the process. You're like Nehemiah. You, you, you hear this report. Man, it's not good. And then, you know, you move from being comfortable to concerned. Like, oh, man i got to do something about it. But then when you reach a place where you're consecrated, and that's the third characteristic, what, what happens is you have already determined in your heart, I'm going to do something about this. Now, the truth is this. You're not concerned about something that all you do is talk about it. Because anything you're concerned about, you're going to be working hard at changing if you're really concerned. Why? Because concern can only be measured by commitment and action. So if all we're doing is talking about being concerned, we're lying to ourselves. And lying to yourself is still lying. You know that, right? So if we're lying to ourselves, then we need to repent if we're lying and saying, God, I'm not really concerned because I don't have your burden for people like I should have a burden for people. And I need you to break my heart until the things that are on your heart become the things that are on my heart. And that's where burden comes in. Does this make sense? So... Concern is more than talk. The real measurement of commitment is action. So, based on that, you know, based on that standard, how concerned are we about our communities, our families, our neighbors? Because to the degree that you're getting involved is equal to the degree that you're legitimately concerned. Because once you reach a place where you've been confronted with the pain and suffering of others, you only have two options. You can either become part of the problem or you can become part of the solution. So when Nehemiah is confronted by this, he realizes something's got to be done. He offers himself as part of the solution. And then God begins to release vision in his life. And I believe that that's prophetically significant for all of us because it has to become more than just our pastor's burden and vision. It has to become our burden and vision. This burden and this vision that God placed in Nehemiah's life was going to require everybody's involvement. And when everybody got involved with it, they were able to rebuild a wall in 52 days that had been laying desolate for 141 years. They rebuilt it. People that said it couldn't be done. They were criticized. They were accused. But you know what? The greatest response to criticism and accusation is a built wall. That church just cares about numbers up there. 
they just want to have a big church. They just blah, 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 blah. People that are out there saying that and criticizing that ain't doing nothing for God in the first place. Why? Because there's plenty enough for us to do that we don't have to be preoccupied with what somebody else is doing. I got five children. I can't worry about what anybody else's children are doing. <laughs> He's got sufficient is today's evil. <laughs> As Jesus said, Let's dealing with today's problems is enough for me. I don't want to take on anybody else's. Now, here's the last thing. The last thing is a determined prayer. A difficult problem, dedicated person, and a determined prayer. Now, notice Nehemiah's first response. His first response is not, I need to do something about it. His first response is prayer. Because, listen, when you're dealing with an impossible situation, you have to be talking to the God who says all things are possible to those that believe. <laughs> right? And so he calls out to God. He, he begins to pray. The only way that you and I will commit to the process Nehemiah went through is by committing ourselves to prayer privately and corporately when we commit ourselves to prayer god begins to take us through that process we move from being comfortable to concerned to committed and prayer is what will produce a heart change within us because if we are unwilling to pray it's simply because we are unconcerned about others now all of us want to see people come to jesus right but the truth is this, we've got no business talking to people about God until we talk to God about people. That's called intercession. And that's what intercession does for the vision that God gives us in order to rebuild our community. Nehemiah, he prays. And the Bible says in verse 4 that Nehemiah wept, he mourned, and he fasted many days. Why? Because only God can touch our hearts and change us to the point to where we're willing to rise up and do something about it. Now, you can go ahead and come to music. I'm going to wrap it up. Something supernatural happens when we're willing to stand in the gap and intercede for others. Something supernatural, whether you feel it or whether you don't, because it's impossible for you not to love somebody that you are praying for. It's impossible. And so God does something supernatural in our heart every time we gather together and pray corporately and when we pray individually. Because prayer by nature is both natural and supernatural. God changes our heart when we pray. Now here's three things about prayer and what it does in terms of vision. Number one, prayer internalizes the burden. Now, what do I mean by that? When you pray for God to give you his burden and vision for your life and for the community and the work God's calling you to, you begin to take ownership in that calling. Are you with me? Prayer internalizes the burden. You know, one man said, don't pray for lighter burdens, pray for stronger backs. A.W. Tozer said, the lighter our cross, the weaker our weakness. So prayer internalizes the burden. In other words, it makes it personal, and you realize, you know what? 
I've got to do something about it. Now, here's the second thing prayer does. Prayer infuses the vision. Now, what does that mean? That means when you pray, God gives you his eyes. In other words, you yourself are able to see exactly what God wants you to do. And what was incredible about the book of Nehemiah is that everybody that God was going to use to rebuild the wall already lived in Jerusalem. He didn't have to call in some televangelist. He didn't have Billy Graham come in. He didn't host some big crusade meeting. He didn't have some eloquent speaker to come in and and to get the saints fired up. He had a burden from God. He realized, you know what, God is doing this. He's doing this in me, and then he's going to do it through me. And that's what it means to have a burden. See, God always does something in you before he does something through you. Here's the third thing. Prayer initiates action. Prayer, listen, is no substitute for obedience. We can't stop, just pray. We got to pray, and we got to pray and believe like everything depends on God, but we've got to work like everything depends on us. See, when we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. And any of us can do our best, but with God, we can do better. Nehemiah understood that. So prayer, it internalizes the burden. It infuses the vision. It initiates action. Stand with me. A difficult problem, dedicated person, and a desperate prayer. Now maybe you're here, and your life is like the wall that surrounded Jerusalem. It's broken, it's shattered. There's only remnants of what used to be. And you're here this morning and you're just a piece of a man or a piece of a woman. But the only way that you will see the pieces of your life put back together again is for you to first turn to God. So let me ask you, what is it in your life that needs to be rebuilt? Because God's into the rebuilding and the restoring of broken things. God loves to turn crucifixions into resurrections. And maybe you're here and that's you. And you're saying, you know what, I've hit rock bottom. There's only pieces of me left. I've given up. All hope that things are going to change for the better. You know what? Good. You know why? Because God cannot even begin to work in your life until you come to the end of yourself. So if you're here this morning and you're come to the end of yourself and God's saying, I'm calling you to me. 
you're in the right place. Because God is the God of happy endings. It may not work out like you hoped, but I promise you the outcome will be worth it in the end. To the rest of you, you know, Nehemiah's praying. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, here's his prayer. He says, Oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then it says something weird. And it says, and I was the king's cupbearer. I mean, it doesn't even seem like it fit in that. He's praying, but remember I said something supernatural happens when we pray, right? Something supernatural happens in Nehemiah's life at that moment. He had one of those aha moments. What happened to Nehemiah? He realized, hey, God, even though I'm not a clergyman, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a full-time ministry worker, I'm a government man. I work for Joe Biden. He got a revelation that, you know, hey, God has put me right here in the Joe Biden administration to make a difference. See, God can use saved people and unsaved people the same way. But it takes the saved people to get a revelation from God that, hey, he's put you right where you're at for a purpose. He said, aha, I'm the king's cupbearer. And so God has positioned me at the right place at the right time to make a difference. The question is, do you know that that's what God's done for you? See, a lot of Christians make the mistake of separating their career from their calling. Oh, I'm just a school teacher. I'm a nurse. I'm a contractor. I'm a, I'm a carpenter. You know, I, I work for the state. I work for the government. You know, I'm a counselor. What, you know, we, God can't possibly use me. Who am I? But Nehemiah has this revelation. And Nehemiah comes to this point. He realizes God has positioned me to be the person that will provide the connection, that will provide the provision to the people to solve the problem and rebuild the wall. And I was the king's cupbearer. It blew his mind. God wants to blow your mind. He wants to use you right where you're at right in your vocation, right in your career, in ways that will blow your mind. And that's what happened to Nehemiah. And I was the king's cupbearer. God wants to open your eyes to show you that you can make a difference right where you're at. He wants to use you. Now some of you, you think, you know what, well God can never use me, I'm not important enough. Well think about Nehemiah's job. It was hard. He was the king's cupbearer. Well, what did the cupbearer do? Well, he knew how to use a fork and a spoon. No special skill set required. Look at me. 
Some of y'all know how to use a fork and a spoon, knife, right? What did the cupbearer do? He just tasted the king's food to make sure it wasn't poison. Nehemiah understood, you know what? It's not about my skill set. It's not about my education. It's not even about my location. It is about my position. And I was the king's cupbearer. And I believe God wants to let you know this morning. You're the king's cupbearer. Has nothing to do with what you have to offer God and everything to do with what God has to offer you. Nehemiah was in the right place at the right time and was in the king's presence. Guess whose presence you're in this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I believe there's people here this morning that their lives are crumbling. But Lord, as things begin to fall apart, they're actually starting to fall in place. Because as they come to the end of themselves, you're going to meet them right where they are. If you're here this morning, and you know and know that you know that you're at your wit's end, that you have come to the end of yourself, and you need God to restore and rebuild your life back, would you shoot your hand up and say, that's me? I need God. Amen. Amen. Maybe you're here, and you're like Nehemiah. At one time, Nehemiah didn't, he wasn't concerned about anybody else. But God dropped a burden in his heart and took him through this process and moved him from being comfortable to concerned to consecrated. And maybe that's what God wants to do for you. So if you're here this morning and you need God to put your life back together again, you've come to the end of yourself, you're in the right place. Because what was impossible to do for over 100 years was redone and completed in 52 days. The point's this. It doesn't take God long to work in your life when you're ready to get down to business. And what he did for them, he'll do for you. As they sing and as they play, would you make your way out of your seat and find a place at the altar and say, God, give me your burden for our community. Give me your burden for the drug addict. Give me your burden for the lost. Give me your burden for the abused, the abandoned. God, I'm comfortable. I'm in a place where I'm comfortable, but God, you want to move me from a place of being comfortable to concerned, to consecrated, and I need you to do this in my heart. And as they sing and as they play, I want to encourage you, get out of your seat. Let's do business with God.